Welcome to the Physics Central Podcast. I'm Calla Cofield. Today we're talking with David Waltham, a geologist at Royal Holloway at the University of London. He's also the author of the new book, Lucky Planet, which presents arguments for why we may be alone in the universe. More specifically, Waltham discusses why the conditions that have allowed life to appear and flourish on Earth are not only rare, but coincidental. They're just very lucky. And it's just far more likely that life will not survive in the universe. We'll discuss Waltham's argument today on the Physics Central podcast. Okay, well, I'm, I'm David Waltham. I, um, I'm a researcher at the University of London. Uh, and about 10 years ago, I became interested in a very simple question, which was, is the Earth special? Uh, and I've been looking into that ever since. And, and the more I look into it, the more interested I get. And, and the book is one of the results of that work. I should emphasize that I actually do believe there are lots of Earth-like planets in the, in the universe. But I also believe that the universe is so enormous that the next nearest one could you know, literally be beyond the cosmic horizon and, and be completely uncontactable. So we're, uh, what I'm actually arguing is not that we're alone. I'm arguing that we're effectively alone. Now, there are an estimated 200 million stars in the Milky Way galaxy, and astronomers are beginning to believe that there are at least that many planets. There are also hundreds of millions of galaxies in the visible universe, which means low estimates say that there are probably trillions of planets in the universe. So even if the odds of finding another Earth-like planet are low, the number of planets is so high, it seems as though we'd still end up finding planets like our own, not too far from our own. Waltham says, maybe not. So you, you can argue that the, the numbers both ways. Certainly the numbers are big in terms of how many planets there are in the universe. But if special conditions are required for life, and, and that's really what the argument is about, we don't know whether special conditions are needed or not. But if special conditions are needed, then you rapidly get to the point where even the number of planets in the visible universe isn't enough to, to make this kind of thing likely. Okay, so what evidence needs to be considered to answer the question, is life unique in the universe? Well, we have to consider biological evidence, like what are the minimum conditions needed to support life? And that leads to a conversation about conditions on the surface of the Earth. Things like, is it the right temperature for life? The Earth has seen a lot of changes in its temperature over the years. We've had ice ages and periods of intense heating. Waltham describes it as similar to the stagger of a drunk partygoer. It's never in a straight line. But Walton then proceeds to show that actually these temperature fluctuations have been relatively mild. For example, since the appearance of liquid water on the surface of the Earth, it's never been so cold that all the water was frozen or so hot that all the water evaporated. And secondly, he argues that these temperature fluctuations could have been a lot worse. There's one major example of how the Earth seems to have luckily avoided a temperature catastrophe. Our sun, over the course of its lifetime, has become brighter. It's radiating more light and more heat onto the planets than it was a few billion years ago. So this means two things. First, just broadly speaking, a planet could form in the habitable zone. That's the distance from the parent star that would give the planet a good surface temperature for life. But if the star heats up, 
that effectively changes where the habitable zone is, so the planet might suddenly not be fit for life. So the Earth should have heated up because of this increase in radiation, but it's actually been cooling down just a little bit. Over the course of Earth's lifetime, carbon dioxide has been getting picked up out of the atmosphere by rainwater and then deposited into rocks and into the ocean. Carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas, so less of it in the atmosphere means a cooler planet. And the efficiency of this effect has been increasing over the last few hundred million years. So if just one of these things was happening, it could have been disastrous for life on Earth. But coincidentally, these two effects have just balanced each other out. Our neighbor, Mars, has experienced a similar atmospheric cooling, and yet it has not been quite so lucky. Yeah, I think Mars is probably the best example because we're 99% we're, you know, sure that there was liquid water running on Mars when it was young. There's lots of geological evidence for, for that on the surface of Mars. But all that liquid water has, has disappeared. It's... Um, you know, some of it's got lost into space. A lot of it has got frozen into the the subsoil. Some of it's frozen into the poles. So, so Mars certainly illustrates that there's no guarantee that once you have liquid water, you keep liquid water. Now, again, that's interesting because Mars, like the Earth, was being heated by a, a less luminous sun when it was younger. But despite that, it's got colder, not got hotter. So that's another example of a planet that's, whose whose history is not what you'd expect it to be at first sight. But unlike the Earth, on Mars, the two processes didn't cancel out. The, the cooling effect, whatever it was that was causing it to cool, has, has utterly dominated. In his book, Waltham also considers how this whole debate about life in the universe is framed. There's a cultural element to this discussion. The fact that we humans have, over time, come to believe that the Earth is not special. What, what happened historically was we, we started off thinking that we were special. We, you know, we believed the Earth was uh, at the stationary at the center of the universe and everything went round it. Uh, and then Copernicus taught us that that wasn't true and Kepler and Galileo and so on came along and, and showed us the evidence. As a, as a consequence of that, we, we accepted that the Earth actually went round the sun. And then people started saying, well, maybe the sun's just another star. Maybe the other stars have planets too. Uh, and, and you know, we discovered then that there were billions of stars in our galaxy, and then in the last century we discovered that even our galaxy wasn't unique and there were billions of those. So slowly over the centuries we've, we've been demoted in our position, and there's a thing called the, the principle of mediocrity, which is, is that you know, the Earth is a typical planet orbiting a typical star in a typical galaxy. Uh, and this has more or less been taken for granted now. But we really don't know how average or how exceptional the Earth is, and we don't know if what we see on Earth is necessarily what we can expect to see on other planets. Waltham discussed another example of how this viewpoint of Earth as an average planet can lead to some faulty logic. It's often said, I often hear it said, I go to a lot of astrobiology conferences and talk to astrobiologists all the time, and a lot of them believe that because life on Earth began very soon after, after liquid water appeared, you know, perhaps only a few tens of millions of years, that they believe that that's evidence that life begins easily, that it, that it starts quickly and, and will therefore appear on, on lots and lots of planets. Unfortunately, there's a flaw to that argument, which is that if 
it takes billions of years to go from simple life to complex organisms like us, then sentient organisms, wherever they live in the universe, will always look back on a history which involves the early start for life, because if it starts late, there isn't enough time for them to appear. So there's this, this observational bias. They will only ever be on planets where life did happen to get started quickly. So what this means is, is not that um, I can show that life doesn't start easily. All it means is that you can't argue that life is an easy trick because it started early on Earth. Maybe it is an easy trick, maybe it isn't. But that, that early start for life on Earth is not evidence one way or the other. It really doesn't tell us uh, how easy life is. Now, of course, this influences both sides of the debate. The fact that we only have one data point. We only have the Earth as an example of a planet that supports life. So when we ask the question, what is necessary for life, we're working at a disadvantage. We need more data. And the best way of gathering that evidence is to go and look at exoplanets and hopefully start to you know, get spectra of their atmospheres and so on of hopefully slightly more habitable planets than the ones whose atmospheres have been studied so far. Uh, and then we can really start to see if, if planets like the Earth are typical or whether they're, they are, as I'm suggesting, very rare. Waltham admits that within that data set, there could be something that proves his theory wrong. If we start to see that, that solar systems like ours are actually fairly typical, then that, that undermines quite a lot of what I say in the book. Uh, but really, you need to read the book to see why that's the case. So that, that would certainly be something that would cause me to, to ask questions. But there's, a, there's actually a technical issue, which is quite hard to describe in just a few words. But one of the properties that I think is special about the solar system is the wide spacing of its planets, uh, because narrow spacing essentially gives you planets that wobble a lot and, and therefore poor climate. So the wide spacing is one of the features that, that helps to give uh, climate stability the Earth. So that's actually quite an easy thing for us to go out and look for. Are solar systems as widely spaced as, as ours, common or rare? Any kind of evidence for even primitive life in a, on an exoplanet would massively undermine what I'm saying. Just this week, some rumors appeared on Twitter suggesting that astronomers may have finally identified an Earth-like planet in another solar system. So a rocky planet the size of Earth in the habitable zone. These characteristics alone don't mean the planet is necessarily habitable, but it's a good start. Now again, these are just rumors, but it brings up a good question. When should we expect to find an Earth-like planet? Scientists have already identified hundreds of exoplanets and there are thousands of candidate planets. So at what point would we give up and concede that maybe there are no Earth-like planets out there? Waltham says it may take a very long time. And just because he believes that we are effectively alone in the universe doesn't mean he thinks we should stop the search. Not at all. Absolutely. We've got to keep looking for two reasons. First of all, I could be wrong. That's the most important reason why we need to keep looking. Secondly, it's just the, the incredible importance of any such discovery. As I say, it's hard to imagine a, a more important uh, discovery from the point of view of, of understanding our place in the universe than, than finding life elsewhere. So it, to me, it's, it's you know, one of the key questions that science needs to answer. How did life begin? How common is life in the universe? And, and so on. Uh, so, yeah, we've got to keep looking. 
one aspect of this that particularly worries me is is that if if we spend the next you know twenty fifty hundred years looking for life outside uh, the solar system and we don't find it as an area of science it, it could become really uh, a difficult area to study it might be an area where, which is looked down upon which which gets a lot of um, derision from from other scientists and from non scientists as a, as a slightly flaky area of science to do. But it may simply be that finding life elsewhere in the universe is a difficult thing to do, and it might take us centuries. And it really worries me that astrobiologists tend to, for, for good reasons, play up the probability of success. And I actually think that's short-sighted. I, I, it concerns me that if we keep playing up the chances of finding life elsewhere in the universe and we don't find it for a long time, then people are going to start you know, not listening to astrobiologists anymore. And uh, it, it could be, as I say, just a very, very short-sighted way of, of, of looking at things. Dreaming about life on other planets is one of humanity's favorite pastimes. And I asked Waltham, doesn't it depress you to think that we might be all alone? The idea that we're probably alone, in, uh, effectively alone, as I said before, effectively alone in the universe, it doesn't really depress me. I, I, I think it's rather wonderful to think that... You know, how special the Earth is and, and how extraordinary it is that I even exist. Uh, so, so I don't find these depressing thoughts at all. I, I can see why other people might, uh, and you know, I'm not setting out to, 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 to uh, upset people. To be completely honest with you, I would love to be wrong about all this. There's no scientific discovery that would be more exciting than the discovery of life on other planets. That would be absolutely fantastic. So in a way, I hope I'm wrong. I just don't think I am. There is much, much more to the case for why Earth is a lucky planet, and you can read about it in David Waltham's new book, Lucky Planet. It just went on sale yesterday. Thank you again to David Waltham for being on the podcast. I'm Calla Cofield. You've been listening to the Physics Central podcast. As always, you can find more podcasts, our Physics Buzz blog, resources, and so much more at physicscentral.com. Tune in next week for more of the Physics Central podcast.